Now this evening we come to our last study in the Old Testament. We shall take some studies uh, in the intertestamental period, that is the period between the end of Malachi and the coming of John the Baptist. I don't know how many we shall have of those, but we shall uh, be having some on that very important period. But now this evening we come to the actual conclusion of uh, the Old Testament. And with this book of Malachi, with our conclusion of it, God has spoken his final word in the Old Testament revelation. Herein lies its importance. In the four centuries between, the, uh, between Malachi's time and uh, John the Baptist, much was to happen. We must never think that God uh, was inactive during that period of four centuries because God was silent. There are times, you know, when we think that if God is silent... He is necessarily inactive. We may be wholly wrong. There are times when God is more active when he is silent than when he is actually speaking. And it would be wholly wrong of us to think that because God was silent uh, after Malachi, the conclusion of Malachi's ministry um, that he was inactive. In fact, God was at work preparing the Jewish nation, and not only the Jewish nation, but the nations of the world for the appearing of Christ. Oh, so much was to happen. That's why I want to take some special studies upon this period. You see, um, the whole rise of the Greek Empire and the preparation of a language for the vehicle of God's revelation in the New Testament was all about to emerge during these years. The, the producing or the creation of the Roman Empire with its unbelievable administration, its great network of roads, its common law and everything else was all a preparation of God for the coming of Christ. So that once Christ came through one language and through one empire, the gospel could be carried, as it were, almost to the ends of the earth. All this was going to happen during these four centuries of silence. But more, God was going to prepare the Jewish nation for the appearance of the Messiah. And in these four centuries after the conclusion of Malachi, God was at work amongst his own and it was Malachi's ministry that came into its own. For you see, it was just here that Malachi had spoken finally for God. And through these silent centuries, it was, it was Malachi that people remembered, waiting for the Elijah who was to come to herald the coming of the Messiah. Nevertheless, 
even though God was very active, he had spoken his last word in that age. And his voice was now to become silent until it was heard crying in the voice of John the Baptist, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I always find it rather solemn when God stops speaking and when God starts speaking. And to me it's rather wonderful that God has now, at this point, concluded what he has had to say. And it is, this is the very reason we've spent so long upon Malachi. When God calls a halt, it's very important. And we particularly need to note what God says uh, just before he finishes speaking. We normally, if we've got something to say, and we know we're not going to speak to a person for a long time, the last uh, um, words we have to say, the last hours, are important to us because we may want to say some rather important things that we've, we've sort of not had the chance to say or we may want to emphasize some lessons or something else. But those last Hours, moments with that person are important to us in the question of what we say. So it is here. Malachi was the last of the long line of prophets stretching from the very beginnings of human history. In the words of God himself in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 14. It's rather remarkable, I think, to trace it right back. Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. I'll read them to you. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, cursed art thou above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. He shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy pain and thy conception. In pain thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In toil shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. This, in a sense, is the watershed of prophecy. These words of God himself, the first prophetic words of the Bible, at the very beginning of human history as we know it. <laughs> there was uh, a little bit of human history before then, from the creation of Adam and Eve until the fall. But human history as we know it began with prophecy. And it began, as it were, with this prophecy out of God's lips directly to Adam and Eve and to the serpent. And um, in a sense, it's as if <clears throat> arising in these words of God himself, 
like some little mountain spring, right up in the summit, enshrouded by mist, something you could easily miss, a little spring bubbling up out of the ground, which later was to find its way into a mountain stream running quietly down the side of the mountain. We find it as we, as we go on, following the course of the stream from its spring. Down we follow it. We follow it through Enoch, and we follow it through Noah, and we follow it through Abraham, and then through Jacob. And then it becomes, as it were, um, a torrent, a mountain torrent running down through a valley. And we see it later in Moses. And we see it broadening out in Samuel and the other prophets of that period. And then on to David. And in David we have uh, some very clear-cut prophecy indeed. It's broadening out until finally, as it were, it descends to the plain and becomes a great river in what we call the latter prophets, till it finds its ocean of fulfillment in the coming of Christ himself. All this is a long line of prophetic succession, going right back to those first words God spoke concerning the coming of Christ, the seed of the woman, and gradually being developed and growing in force and power and clarity and authority all the way through the Old Testament until we come to Malachi, the last of this great line of prophets. And when we've come to Malachi, we look back on what can only be described as the most remarkably detailed foretelling of the coming Christ and of the coming kingdom of God that we could have. And all these prophets, from the weakest to the strongest, had seen the Messiah and his coming and his kingdom by the Spirit. And they had glory. Even some of those that we might not generally consider to be great prophets, they had seen something of the coming Messiah. And their lives had caught something of the glow, something of, of the vision. And they had, as it were, spent themselves upon God himself. They had staked everything upon the sovereign purpose of God. And forsaking everything else, they had become pilgrims and sojourners in the earth, seeking for that city which has the foundations. And to me, it's always a very wonderful thing when you think of the prophets, because they were all men and women, uh, even the prophetesses, and there are some, um, uh, of like um, passions as ourselves, they the same type of people, really basic. We always tend to think of them as a cut above ourselves, as somehow more uh, naturally holy and removed from ourselves, but they weren't. They weren't at all. They were very ordinary people, just like you and I, who'd seen something and had responded in faith to what they had seen. And what they saw turned them from inhabitants 
into pilgrims, and it's always the same. Uh, this evening I'm applying these things as we go along. It's true that if you and I have caught something of the coming Christ and of his coming kingdom, we can no longer be inhabitants. We have become pilgrims and sojourners. We are turned by what we see through faith in what we see. We are turned into pilgrims. And instead of, of having an abiding city down here, we seek after one that is to come which has the foundations. We have discovered that everything down here, not because of physical sight or our natural mind, but because of the eyes of our hearts being enlightened, we have suddenly seen that every city down here hasn't got foundations, not eternal foundations. Every single thing built down upon this level of earth has not got those enduring and uh, lasting foundations. And we seek after that which is to come, which has got such enduring and eternal foundations. Well, all these prophets were men like that. They risked everything upon Christ. Now, I say that advisedly. They risked everything upon Christ. It was the coming Messiah, the Christ, that they saw to be as the focal point of all God's purpose. They saw that it was the Christ and his kingdom upon which everything was dependent. And they risked everything upon it. They'd been prepared to become fools for Christ's sake, despised by their own generation, often held in derision, scorned uh, as perhaps being uh, uh, people with their heads in the clouds. And why? Only because of their faith in one who was invisible. And because of their faith in a kingdom as yet unrevealed. This is why Hebrews 11 tells us about this great prophetic succession by which the Old Testament has come to us as men who through faith triumphed. You see, they were the very evidence, they were the very substantiating of things not seen. They, their lives revealed that they'd seen something which caught them up and took them on and forward. So it is with them all. They were unpopular because they were of their uncompromising declaration of the inevitability of judgment upon sin and upon backsliding and upon disbelief. You see, the prophets did not delight in judgment. You've only got to read Jeremiah to see how tired and, and almost um, um, unhappy, more than unhappy, he was almost rebellious about the message of judgment that he had to bring. But you see, these were men who'd seen something. And they saw the inevitability of judgment. They didn't see God as a God who loves judgment. But they saw judgment as inevitable. They saw sin as a cause and judgment as an effect. 
And you see, they, they, they were uncompromising in the declaration. If there is sin, there must be judgment. If it doesn't come now, it will come. But it must come sooner or later. If there is backsliding, judgment will be the outcome. If there is disbelief, now I say that carefully, as over against evil unbelief, disbelief then it must inevitably end in judgment. And so must departure from God's purpose. They were men, all these prophets were men of God's purpose. They were mastered by God's purpose. They had been apprehended by a vision of God's purpose. They saw redemption as a means to an end into God's everlasting purpose. And uh, you see, they saw that any departure any departure from that purpose must inevitably lead to judgment. In other words, whilst in the purpose of God, we were under the covering, as it were, of the blood. But if we got out from the purpose of God, then we were out in a sphere which is coming under the judgment of God. All this is very solemn, and it is no wonder that this long prophetic succession was unpopular. Never were men more unpopular. Never were there more martyrs, if not in, if physically, certainly spiritually, as found in this long prophetic line, beginning in Genesis 3 and going right the way through the Old Testament until Malachi. And yet, you know, behind all this uncompromising declaration of the inevitability of judgment upon sin and upon any drawing back from full committal to the Lord was a, a yearning at times that consumed the prophet, a yearning that God's own people, God's own, might share not only their faith and vision, but share the glorious fulfillment of which they were absolutely convinced was going to come. And this was the energy of the prophets. This is the thing that, I, that, that made them, rather than deny what they'd seen, they were prepared to die for it. Because within them was not just a, a, a kind of liking for the heavy-handed judgment type of preaching, uh, but... Uh, but because within them there was an all-consuming love for God and for his people. And that somehow or other everyone who was blood-bought might, might come right into what they had seen and might live in the good of what God had provided. When you see this, and when I talk of the prophetic line, I want you to remember... I'm talking about those through whom the whole Old Testament has been written. Uh, there are some, you know, we don't normally think of as prophets, uh, who are called prophets, such as Moses. We don't normally think of him as a prophet, but he's called a prophet. Um, all these, in their sense, functioned as prophets. These, these men, all of them, were consumed with this desire that we might come into such a knowledge of the Lord as they had, and in the end might be in the, in the vindication of the Lord. Well, now that puts a new slant upon the Old Testament. 
And it puts a new slant, as it were, upon all those passages about judgment that you see. You see, the prophet was a wise man, spiritually. And he knew that, as we sometimes have to with children, to warn seriously and almost with a heavy hand and a severe tone pays greater dividends sometimes than just being sentimental and silly. There are times when somehow or other we've got to bring home to people if by no other way that if they go on like that they're in for trouble. And this was the, the unpopular burden of the prophet's ministry. Well now when we come of course to Malachi that prophetic succession was completed until the one came surely envied by all the other prophets of that great and long line, who was to actually see Christ upon the earth face to face, and was to, 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 to declare, Behold the Lamb of God who beareth away the sin of the world. Malachi contains, in a very real sense, the condensed message of the Old Testament. It's as if the whole Old Testament is found suddenly in these four very short chapters, compressed in essence. As we look back over the rest of the books of the Old Testament, we see, firstly, Christ as the centre and the circumference of all. You will you remember a little while ago, I was going to do it out again on, on, uh, on the board, you will remember that uh, when we were taking the aim and scope of the Bible, I drew out a diagram of a three-fold cord that ran from the first three chapters of the Bible to the last three. The Redeemer, the work of redemption, the Redeemer. And bounding it all was the eternal purpose of God. So that we see in the first three chapters and the last three something of God's eternal purpose as a great background to the coming of the Redeemer, the work of redemption, and the redemption of the redeemed. Those are the three great strands. Now, it is very interesting that in this book of Malachi we had these three strands very, very clearly Indeed. First of all, you see, we've said the whole of the Old Testament can be gathered up in this sentence. Christ, the centre and the circumference of all. It doesn't matter whether it is act. It doesn't matter whether it's symbol. It doesn't matter whether it's type. It doesn't matter whether it's prophecy. You will find everywhere, all through the Old Testament, you will find Christ as the centre. And Christ is the circumference. He is all. When the Lord Jesus walked on that road to Emmaus, it's, it is said that he began to open up their, their understanding and show them from all the scriptures, from the law and the prophets, all those things concerning himself. And a little later on, it says again that when he appeared in the midst of, the, of those gathered in the upper room, he breathed upon them and received the Holy Spirit and he touched their understanding that they might understand all those things concerning himself 
in the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms. Now, you see, it is a wonderful thing when you look back and discover how much Christ is found in the Old Testament. Uh, but, you know, it's found also in Malachi. Uh, it's as if Malachi um, has underlined it. First of all, in chapter 3, in verse 7, you have this little phrase, Return unto me, and I will return unto you. How often have we found that phrase in the Old Testament? Return unto me. The heart of the matter is not things, nor truths, but Christ. And in spite of the fact that Malachi has been speaking about offerings, and about service, and about life, lives, and much else, his great cry is, the Lord says, return unto me. Not return to holiness. Not return to purity. Not return to faith. Not return to truth. Not return to righteousness. But return unto me. And I will return unto you. That's the key to everything. If we return back to the Lord then we shall return to holiness. And when the Lord returns to us, we've got holiness within. We return unto him. It's the beginning of purity. He returns to us and becomes our purity. And so we could go on. We've lost our faith. Return to the Lord. And he will return to us and we shall find we've got faith again. He is our faith. And so we can go on and we can go on and we can go on. This is the heart of the whole matter. What are blemished offerings? What is corrupted service? What are compromised lives? I'll tell you what it is. It is adding something else to what Christ is. That's all. Or substituting something that is not Christ for Christ. That's what it is. In other words, it is the adulteration of Christ. Now this is where the Old Testament so, so clearly warns us. God has provided us with a spotless lamb. He has given us a complete Christ. It's up to us to take Christ. Not to add what we are in our old nature to what he is. Not somehow or other to substitute what we are for what he is. But seeing that we have been obliterated by the cross to come with what he is and offer it to God. It's, it's a big lesson to learn, but it's a basic lesson. And it is for want of learning this lesson that many of us are still at the very, on the very brink of the Christian life instead of writing an experience and an enjoyment of it. Now look at the rest of the Old Testament. Let's see whether we find this, this Christ as everything. Well, go back to Genesis. Just take the life of Abraham. Now look at him. Two examples from the life of, of Abraham. Do you remember when God told Abraham that by faith he was to dwell into the, in the land? And do you remember when a famine came and I expect Abraham had a long uh, uh, argument with himself and possibly with Sarah? about it, what should we do? 
What should we do? Everyone was, was hungry. Um, there was a famine everywhere. Well, I can hear them say, well, the sensible thing to do is to move where there's food. Well, Abraham said, but what about God? He said to us that we should stay within the land. Well, I suppose Abraham said, we've got to use our common sense, haven't we, dear? I mean, the whole point is this. If God doesn't give us food here in the land, he obviously means us to go down into Egypt where there is food provided. For God surely means us to stay alive. And then, dear, we can always come back, can't we? And so they both journeyed down into the land, and you know what happened? They got themselves into a terrible mess in Egypt. And the only way they could get out of it was by the grace of God alone. They had to be full confession. And then what did Abraham do? He went straight back to the last altar he built in the land and he built it again. He went back to where he left Christ. That's really what it means. He got out of Christ. And somehow or other, he got away and he had to go all the way back again. All right, take another story. You know, it's a very interesting thing that Abraham was never allowed to initiate anything. God never allowed Abraham to initiate anything. Uh, Abraham had to, um, had to learn that God was the source of all. And you remember how God promised him a son and how Abraham tried, uh, tried to believe and did believe very triumphantly for quite a while until it became seemingly ridiculous and his faith began to fail and Sarah evidently didn't help him as they talked. They evidently did share things together and sometimes our sharing can in fact lead us astray uh, in a strange way. And they were sharing together and uh, I suppose Sarah said to him, well look dear it's obvious to me that God means you to take my hand. It's what's well, obvious, isn't it? I mean, um, uh, otherwise God would have answered our prayer long ago. I mean, it's never heard of at our age. And she's young. And well, it'll all be right. And Abraham listened and thought, well, now isn't that sensible? Of course, it's all still faith. And of course, it's all still of God. Um, I shall be father, as I would have been before. And after all, I suppose God will help. And so there was the birth of Ishmael. But Ishmael, you know, is with us today. And uh, that mistake has lasted for millenniums because he got out of Christ. Well, we could go on and we could go on. What when you come to the, to the book of Exodus, you come to the golden calf, the people had to repent and return all the way through in the wilderness. What was it? In the book of Numbers, we find they had to return. You see, all the time the people... The, the cry of the Lord was to find their life in him. If they would only return to him, then he would return to them and, and all would be well. And you go all the way through the Old Testament, it doesn't matter where you turn, you will find this lesson written on every page. Depart from the Lord, even if it seems to be common sense, even if it seems to be reason, even if it seems to be all the evidence seems to point that's the way and you're in trouble. Return to the Lord, even though it's a walk of blind faith. Return to the Lord, and he returns to you, and the impossible is realized. So we can go on. Well, I, 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 we, we mustn't spend too much time on this, but you see, you take the book of Leviticus, and you will find all the offerings speak of Christ, don't they? We know that. Every one of them. Look at those offerings. Every kind of offering for whatever your need is. Have you sinned and are you conscious of sin? Then 
here's an offering for you. We call it the sin offering. Have you sinned and you're not, uh, you're not conscious of it, but suddenly you become aware, you did it unconsciously, it wasn't deliberate, here is a trespass offering. Is there something wrong between you and another brother, or you and another sister, somehow or other, you're out of gear? That's sin, you know, it's not just temperamental, it's not just trouble, it's sin. Here's an offering, the peace offering. Do we need in our lives something of the new man? Here is the meal offering. Do we need, do we need to know something of worship in our lives, of service, of, of communion with God? Here is the burnt offering. But Christ is everything. It's an interesting thing that the Passover began the, the Jewish people's year. That the year began with the Passover. And um, all these, all these things which run right the way through the Old Testament, from almost from beginning to end, reveal just one thing. Christ is everything. He is centre and he is circumference. Well, now, when you begin to realise that, you understand what this little word return means. And you come, come to, to, to the prophets and their great cry is return. That is really the key to their ministry, that the people should return to the Lord. Well, now, this is that little word found in Malachi, and in a sense it explains the whole Old Testament. Christ is everything. But there's another little word in chapter 3 and verse 1, where we are told that the messenger of the covenant, he, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And this is another little phrase which in one sense gathers up the whole Old Testament. Christ is coming. And it doesn't matter where you turn in the Old Testament, written somehow, if in, not in type or symbol, then it's written in, an, in uh, history, in an act, or it is in actual prophecy. You have this, this cry, Christ is coming. Wherever you turn, this explains the Old Testament. Right the way from Genesis to Malachi, the word is Christ is coming. And this was the thing that kept the long succession of prophets going. Christ is coming. They passed it on one to another by the Spirit, developing what the pre their predecessor had said. Christ is coming. And the best example in the whole of the Old Testament, I think of this, is Daniel. And I've, I always find that book one of the most wonderful books in the whole of the Bible. It is, of course, one of the most difficult and complex and mysterious. But it is also one of the most wonderful in the whole of the Bible. And Daniel, it was given to Daniel to see, as it were, the whole of time, and especially of Gentile history, he saw our day right back, all those thousands and thousands of years ago, he saw the day in which we were living. Right the way down from his own time, he saw through the Babylonian, the Persian, and the Greek, and the Roman, right down to the extension of the Roman, to our own times. And as it were, you remember what he saw. They weren't very happy visions. Um, I've always had great sympathy with Daniel once one has begun to study his visions that he felt sick for so many days. He said he felt sick in the head. 
for many days. He was troubled by his visions. And I can well believe it, that um, for Daniel, it must have been a blow to faith in some ways. Uh, when he saw just how long the battle was going to be, when he glimpsed just the forces that were against God's people, and when the Lord not only allowed him to see the forces, but allowed him to see the, the, those forces seemingly overcoming God's people, given being allowed to wear out God's children, it says in one place, to wear out the saints of the Most High. Well, I can imagine that Daniel did feel ill uh, at the very thought of all that was to come. But you know, the thing that in the end comes out, when he tells us of that great colossus with that head of gold, and then its chest of silver, and its thighs of brass down to its iron legs, a huge statue going right up into the sky. And he tells us what it means, and, um, well, he's got us all trembling as we see the succession of Gentile history. And then, suddenly, he tells us, there came a stone out of heaven, not cut by hand, and it the statue, it hit that great colossal statue and the thing crumbled into dust and never got up. You see, Christ is coming. And the wonder of it is this, that God, just because God had a faithful man, he could show him the picture in dark colours. He could show him the reality of the whole thing. He could show him Antichrist. Not only uh, Antiochus, but long after him, right down through all these, these men who've been but shadows of the Antichrist, Nero and, and Hitler and Stalin and these, they're but shadows of the Antichrist, of the one who in the end will come with power over the, all the world to do as he wishes, with a great religious system linked to him. Yes, all that. Daniel saw it all. Do you know in those days, if they are soon, I don't know, if they are soon, that book of Daniel and the book of Revelation and some other parts of God's words are going to become more and more and more precious to us as we discover this for the comfort and the strengthening and the encouragement of our faith that thousands of years ago all this was foreseen. Foreseen. And you know, it's a great comfort when you think, Someone saw all this. And they not only saw all this, but they saw the end. And the end, a little stone. That's all. Not cut out by human hand. Flung out from heaven. Hurled at the statue and the things finished. Christ is coming. Well, that explains the whole Old Testament. By the time that uh, John the Baptist appeared, everyone was waiting for the coming Christ. They were all waiting. When John the Baptist came, they rushed through him. They're not just the common people. The Pharisees and the scribes went down to John the Baptist and they said, Who are you? Are you the Christ? See, they were waiting for him. Or if you're not the Christ, are you the forerunner of the Christ? You see, this message of the Old Testament had become from a little quiet note 
in Genesis, it had become a great roar at the end of the Old Testament. Christ is coming. Well, that, that's true. Everything's bound up with Christ. Everything. Do you come to this question of the name and the covenant of the Lord? I don't have to say too much about that. Um, you know that in Malachi we've already seen how these two matters are again and again referred to. The name of the Lord and the covenant of the Lord. But you know, what is the meaning of this phrase, the name of the Lord? What does it really mean? If only you and I could understand what the name of the Lord means. Well, if you turn back to Genesis 2 and look from verse 18 to verse 25, you will discover that the Lord took Adam uh, aside and caused to pass before him all the animals of creation that he might name them. It was a question of names. And the whole idea was, could Adam find something that he couldn't name because it was so near himself? That's all. Really, God was testing out Adam to find whether there was anything that answered to Adam. So like him, so much part of him, that he could say, this is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. But he couldn't find anything in all the creation that came before him until God put him to sleep and took out of him a part of him, part of his rib, part of his flesh, and made and created woman. And then when Adam came uh, uh, back again, awoke out of his sleep and saw the woman, he said, this is woman that is taken out of man. She, because she has been taken out of her, this is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. Then he said, she shall be called woman because she's been taken out of man. And then he goes on and says, and um, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Now this is all very wonderful because you see, marriage is a matter of name. A woman loses her name and gains a man's in marriage. And that's just what the name of the Lord, what its real significance is. The name of the Lord. If you begin to look through the Old Testament, you will begin to discover that the name of the Lord is associated with the dwelling place of God. You've got that, remember, in Deuteronomy, where the Lord continually said, you shall not offer your offerings or sacrifices or on any place which you shall choose, but you shall come to the place where I shall cause my name to dwell there. And so the name of the Lord is associated with the dwelling place of the Lord. It really means, it really speaks of the eternal purpose of God. What is the eternal purpose of God? to take us out of Christ, to produce a people out of Christ and in union with Christ. That is, their flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone and one with him they share his name. Now once you've seen that, and that is the eternal purpose of God, then you begin to understand what else the name of the Lord signifies. It means safety. It means refuge. 
It means authority. Why? Well, you see, you're safe because you're one with him. You can't be safer. <laughs> you understand? You're safe because you're one with Christ. You're, you're hidden in him. He is your refuge. You can hide in him. He is your authority. Just as a, um, a wife can go in and say, I am Mrs. So-and-so. So in a sense, I don't wish to be blasphemous or irreverent, we can say, we are Mrs. G. We belong to the Lord. We are his wife. We are his body. We have his name and we've got authority. That's what we do in prayer. In the name of Jesus. What does it mean? Simply means we're married to the Lord. We've got his name. Now this phrase is everywhere in the Old Testament. Whenever you look, whether it's to do with the tabernacle, whether it's to do with the temple, whether it's to do with Zion, whether it's to do with Jerusalem, everywhere you will discover this, this um, definition of the purpose of God. And of course, when you come to the prophets, well, you've got it all again, as well as the Psalms. How much the Psalms speak of the name of the Lord and Zion and Jerusalem and the temple and so on. And how much do the prophets? You think of Isaiah. How much he spoke of Zion. Zion figures very greatly with Isaiah. And Ezekiel, you think of that great temple that he speaks of at the end of his prophecies. I leave all this with you, but I want you just to see that this phrase that we find so much in the book of Malachi explains the whole Old Testament from the beginning to the end. The name of the Lord. It's not just that we know the name of the Lord as Jehovah, or we, may, we know the Lord Jesus as Jesus. Much more than that. It's the significance of the name. The what's behind the name that is so tremendous. We have come to share in Christ. It's as simple as that. And then this other phrase, the covenant of the Lord. Do you know that the Hebrew word translated covenant comes from the root to divide or to cut into two. That's all. And you've got the idea in Genesis chapter 15 and the last part of that chapter from 9 on to the end where the Lord told Abraham when he made a covenant with him to take those different animals, those sacrificial uh, victims, and to cut them in two. And to lay them one on one side, the other on the other. And then we're told that in the darkness, Abraham saw a great smoking furnace that went up and down between the pieces. Now, do you know how a covenant was made in the ancient East? But amongst the, um, the ancient Israelites and the other Semitic peoples of the East? Well, they made it by taking an animal cutting it into two, and then the parties who were making the covenant walked up and down between the pieces. And often, later, they would uh, cook the pieces and each eat. Uh, and this was how a covenant was made. And this word covenant comes from this idea of, of an animal being sacrificed and cut into two, you see. And the idea is not that we are equals with God and can make a covenant with him, not at all, but that God in his sovereign grace and 
mercy has condescended to make a covenant with us and he himself has fulfilled the conditions of it all so that he has covenanted to make himself our salvation and life. Now that's what we mean by the covenant. And uh, this phrase is everywhere in the New in the Old Testament. It really just mean, means an eternal relationship with God by the redeeming blood of the Lamb. Have you got an eternal relationship with God by the redeeming blood of the Lamb alone? Now there is a death, and by that death of Christ a covenant has been made. Now that means Christ died for me, and because Christ died for me, for my sin, God says, I will be your salvation and I will be your life. But just wait. We can know God as our salvation because Christ died for us. But if we want to know God as our life, we must know Christ dying as us. And that's a very, a very big thing. To know that the covenant means you're out. You're out. And I'm your life. I'm out. God is in. That's the covenant. So here is a covenant relationship. And I'm not going to stop with that anymore this evening because the Old Testament is filled with references to the covenant love and grace and mercy of the Lord. So Malachi sums up the whole Old Testament revelation in a few words. As if before the silence reigns of those four centuries, God would speak once more clearly and authoritatively, revealing his heart and mind and calling upon his own to return and to remember and to fear and to experience the wealth that was theirs in him, to think upon his name to experience the wealth that was theirs in him as if God wanted to reassure them that in all the battle the, the climax of the conflict at the end and though they needs must walk by faith sometimes blindly yet the son of righteousness would arise and there would be healing in his wings for them and on that day however long they had to wait for it on that day they would joyfully run out to meet him as if he wanted to say to them that although at times it must seem to the faithful remnant amongst them that it was needless pain and needless suffering and needless trial that they were being called upon to experience and go through. Yet, those very things would produce a treasure of jewels incomparable for value and incredible for beauty which God would prize himself personally throughout the whole of eternity. 
as if before a silence reigned, God wanted them to know that although he was now silent, although the prophets were no longer speaking, yet every conversation of that faithful remnant was being recorded by the Lord for all eternity because such conversation meant so much to the Lord himself in days of general unfaithfulness and faith. You have no idea what it means to God to hear two saints talking about him and really talking about him in days when he, his word is not believed, when in theory he's accepted and in practice denied. It means a lot to God to hear in a kitchen, to hear in a drawing room, to hear in an office, to hear in a garden, that kind of talk which reveals people who fear the Lord and think upon his name. Now this is what the little book of Malachi is about, really. It's as if God wants to say something to us. And you know, hasn't this book got a message for us in the days in which we live? The supremacy of the Lord Jesus, the headship of the Lord Jesus, the centrality of the Lord Jesus contradicted, not in a few places, but so generally, here and everywhere. Where is the Lord supreme? Where is the Lord head, practically? Where is the Lord the center and the heart of everything? You'll have to go a long, long way in Christian things, before you find such a company. In fact, before you find such people, they are there. But oh, how lost they are amongst the general run of Christian today. No, in, in the place of Christ we put men, in the place of Christ we put things. There, these, these things are in the way of the Lord. This book has a message for us. The name of Christ, so cheaply and familiarly used, taken in vain, and thus despised, even if unwittingly, it's despised. The things of God and Christ handled in such a way that the covenant, which has cost God his son and his son his life, profane and adulterated. Wherever we look, and I include ourselves, wherever we look amongst ourselves here, or to the farthest extremities of Christendom, we see a powerless form of godliness. We see a refusal to give Christ, his position and his rights, if not in theory, certainly in practice. We call him Lord, Lord, but we do not his works. It's everywhere. Wherever we look, we see loose living. We see immorality. I would, could dwell for a long time on this one matter. I don't think... I, 
there has ever been so much immorality amongst God's children as there is at present. Loose living, immorality, superficiality. Do we have to say anything about that? Look how superficial Christians are today. We have such a thin veneer, I speak of ourselves and myself, such a thin veneer, really. Everywhere it's the same and compromise. Where can you pick out Christians? Not because they're dusty and uh, sort of got that awful look that seems to be highly removed from this world in a wrong kind of way don't mean that, that's not godliness and it's not spirituality and it's certainly not Christ-likeness but I do mean you should be able to tell a Christian there is a, there is a characteristic of the Christian there's a hallmark of the child of God you should be able to tell them it's a wonderful thing when someone comes up to you in the train or in the bus and says you're a Christian they just sensed you're a Christian they know it it's a wonderful thing. But where is it? Why? Because the compromise. I don't mean we're going to the pictures or we're smoking or we're drinking. Those may all those things may come into it. I mean that the world is inside. That's what I mean. It's not Christ purely there. Self's there as well. And so all this Malachi speaks to us, got a message for us today and what can we do? What can we do? What can we do? But return to the Lord and remember and do the first things and buy of the Lord gold refined in the fire that we might become his treasure in that day. That we should think upon his name and share him with each other, one with the other, so that somehow or other, when the Son of Righteousness arises, he might arise with healing in his wings and not judgment for us. Well, now we've, we've covered, really, nearly everything. But there is just one further thing to say. And uh, without it, we've neither done justice to Malachi nor to the Old Testament. The whole message of Malachi and indeed of the Old Testament is summed up in those seven words in verse 2 of chapter 1 of Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord. In the end, that is the sum of Malachi and the Old Testament. Behind all God's ways and words, behind the whole revelation of himself contained in the Old Testament lies his everlasting love. From Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 right through to Malachi chapter 4 and verse 6, upon every page, through every act, in every declaration, be it mercy or judgment, be it grace or truth, we find these words breathing. I 
have loved you, saith the Lord. There would be no Old Testament but for those words. God would never have started the record. If he had not loved, he would have not persevered. And if he had not persevered, there wouldn't be any redemption. There would be no redeemer and there would be no redeemer. No, you see, in the last analysis, it is this wonderful little phrase, I have loved you, saith the Lord, which is the key to it all. Whether it be his perseverance, or his sorrow, or his anger, or his comfort, or his encouragement, whether it be in the Pentateuch, whether it be in the historical books, whether it be in the Psalms, whether it be in the prophets, wherever it is, all comes out from this great love of God for us. This love which refuses to give up and persists until it has obtained its objective. It's this love which rejects blemished offerings, which rejects corrupted service and compromised lives. Why? Because, because it is a despising of his name and a profaning of his covenant. And his very love will not allow it. Just as we, with little children, cannot allow certain things because we love them. It is because we love them that we train them up. Not because we dislike them, but because we love them. And we want to, we want to create in them a sense <coughs> of responsibility. We want to produce in them character. <coughs> we want them to have a life that's worth living because we love them. So we refuse to accept certain things. It's not only that. It's not only because it's cheap and insulting to the Lord when he has provided everything, but because it is not in the highest and best interest of those that he loves. That's why. And it is this love which still cries out after centuries of failure and backsliding and disobedience and disbelief, it cries out, return and remember. And there's not a person in this room who has not had years sometimes of failure and backsliding and disobedience to whom the Lord has not persisted with his cry, return, 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 again and again and again. Otherwise we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be here. Return and remember. I believe that's love. That at the end of thousands of years of backsliding and breakdown, God ends the record with return to me and remember. That's the love of God. And it is this love which still promises a glorious part in his throne and in his glory and kingdom. 
before it can speak of a cursing, before it can speak of an utter destruction, it speaks of sending an Elijah, that the most impenitent and hardened heart, perchance, might somehow repent and return to the Lord. This is God's love. When we would long ago have finished, God is still persisting. Such a revelation must lead us to say with Paul, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or anguish or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sore? Nay. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I believe that's the most fitting end to the Old Testament that we could have.